Captain Pascoe and Mr Pritchard in their own respective boats did me the favour to accompany me to the shore. I was received at the government wharf by Lieutenant Governor Patterson and a great number of inhabitants. We bowed as I passed through the lane formed by the troops all the way from the wharf to the gate of the government house. Mrs Patterson, attended by Mrs Abbott, received Mrs McCary at the government house. After remaining there for about an hour, I went up to see the barracks and parade. We made the necessary arrangements with Colonel Patterson for landing the 73rd Regiment tomorrow and having my commission as Governor of this territory publicly read tomorrow at 12 o'clock at the head of the 73rd and 102nd Regiments formed in a square and in the presence of all inhabitants with all one form and solemnity. Lachlan McQuarrie, December the 31st, 1809. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 28, Australia, Part 1 During the second decade, Australia was perhaps the strangest, the darkest, and the saddest country on God's green earth. On New Year's Day 1810, the day on which its fifth colonial governor, Lachlan Macquarie, took control of the colony, Australia, then known only as New South Wales, and its mother country, Great Britain, were only 22 years into an experiment of spurious colonialism that was totally unique and unprecedented in the entire history of European imperialism. The bizarre and cynical circumstances under which Great Britain founded the colony in 1788 ensured that European colonization of the distant, unknown continent of Australia, if it managed to succeed at all, would ultimately result in an equally bizarre and unusual society. It was a society obsessed by class, in which a tiny elite of insecure aristocrats yearned to build a social pyramid that would offer them the lofty positions they were generally unable to attain back in England. It was a society of criminals and ne'er-do-wells who never stopped yearning for a better life and who often achieved it, a society in which redemption really was achievable for some. It was also a racist society, marked from the beginning by conflict with the continent's indigenous inhabitants, the Aborigines, who suffered more than most First Nations peoples who discovered that Europeans had claimed their lands. The early decades of white settlement in Australia present an ugly and almost relentlessly unpleasant picture, full of beatings and massacres, frontier violence, starvation, crime, sexual oppression, everything you would expect from a prison. Australia in the second decade was a prison, 
and a charnel house, and a battleground. But it was also, almost in spite of itself, the ultimate test of perseverance and the human spirit. Australia's story is full of those kinds of dichotomies. When Lachlan Macquarie and his wife Elizabeth stepped off the ship HMS Dromedary in Sydney Harbour in the final days of the year 1809, they stepped into a world that was totally unique anywhere on planet Earth. Macquarie had been summoned to fix the nascent colony's very serious problems, and he was to have his hands full. In only 20 years, the dubious experiment of New South Wales had already gone badly wrong. But by the time they left, in November 1821, the grubby colony Macquarie inherited was beginning to look like something. It had public buildings and roads, schools, a hospital, and a bank. British explorers had penetrated the mysterious interior of the continent, paving the way for further expansion, although much to the detriment of the native inhabitants. Macquarie indeed left his name almost everywhere it would fit, on lakes, rivers, islands, streets, marshes, a hotel, a lighthouse, a harbor, a military fort, and much else. Many of these, the first establishments of their kind on this, the last inhabitable continent to be colonized by Europeans. In fact, by the time Macquarie departed, that continent itself had a new name, Australia, a word which was not made up by Macquarie, but which he gave the place in a letter in 1817. The colony that was eventually to have that name was founded in 1788, but it was the second decade that ultimately proved decisive in the history of New South Wales, and is yet another tick in the ledger that proves that it was really during the 18-teens that our modern world began to take shape. So join me now for the first of a series of adventures down under, the almost unbelievable story of Australia. Good evening. As is customary, I have a couple of very brief housekeeping items to take care of before we delve into the history of Australia. It's been a while since my last episode, and a lot has happened in that time. I'm very pleased to announce that Second Decade has been picked up by the brand new Recorded History Podcast Network. This is the first episode of this podcast on the network. Recorded History seeks to bring you the best of historical podcast shows, and I'm very happy to be in such illustrious company. There's some terrific shows on the Recorded History Network. History in the Making is in its first season, currently going through the fascinating world of ancient Greece and the Mediterranean. There's the very funny Election College podcast, with an irreverent look at everything you ever needed to know about American presidential elections. A great podcast I especially like is on the network, that's the Dead Ideas podcast, which is all about things that people used to believe were true, but don't anymore. Everything from Titoism to the practice of self-mummification. And to show you what illustrious company I'm now in, Recorded History Network also features the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast about the history of religion and politics in America. This podcast is the work of Dr. John Fay, a fellow of history PhD who's studied and written extensively about this topic, especially religious history in the American Revolution era. So I want to thank the great people at Recorded History Network for bringing me on board. And if you like well-hosted, well-researched historical podcasts, of course you do because you're listening to this one, check out all the shows on Recorded History Network. You might just find some new favorites. And now, Australia. I'd like to think that I'm pretty well-rounded in my historical knowledge, 
Although my academic background is in environmental history, on this show we've done everything from the War of 1812 to feudal Japan. But I admit, before I started the research for this miniseries, I knew virtually nothing about the history of Australia. One hears that Australia, at least in its European incarnation, was founded by convicts. That explains much in the Australian national character and popular consciousness. But beyond this simple fact, Australian history is curiously opaque. Before I began working on these episodes, I couldn't even name a single figure from Australian history. I didn't even know that one of the first governors of New South Wales, for instance, was William Bly, the British sea captain most well known for his command of the HMS Bounty, on which the famous mutiny occurred in 1789. Australia, therefore, remains kind of hazy in most people's minds. Even today, if we don't live there, and I beg the indulgence of the Second Decade fans who do live there, beyond concepts like the Outback, or the Anzacs of World War I, the fact that Australia was briefly bombed by the Japanese in World War II, and then modern pop culture items like Peter Weir, Crocodile Dundee, Foster's Beer, and Russell Crowe, Australia is still, even in this century, terra incognita. But in the second decade, Australia might as well have been on another planet. The process of transportation, by which criminals convicted in Britain were loaded on creaky ships and delivered tens of thousands of miles away at New South Wales, was not unlike the voyages you see depicted in science fiction, of colony ships full of settlers on a one-way trip to an inhospitable planet, where they expect to spend the rest of their lives and maybe, just maybe, plant a human toehold in an utterly alien environment. New South Wales was like that in the second decade. Before we get into the background of where these English criminals were going, and why, I thought we would start on a very human level, with one ship, one voyage to Australia in this period, and the people who made it. On August 25, 1815, a ship called the Fanny sailed from a port in England, almost certainly Portsmouth or Plymouth, and spent 146 days at sea, arriving at Sydney, New South Wales, on January 18, 1816. On that voyage, one of seven convict voyages to Australia to sail from England in the year 1815, the Fanny carried 174 convict passengers, of which 55 had life sentences three convicts died during the voyage. Australian genealogists have meticulously collected records of convict transportees to Australia, and these records are easily available on the internet. I picked a few of the passengers on this particular voyage of the Fanny at random, and here they are. They're fascinating. Felix O'Hare, born in 1787, birthplace unknown, he was convicted in the Edinburgh Court of Justiciary of the crime of, quote, obstructing officers of the revenue. Not sure what that means. Tax evasion, perhaps. He was sentenced to seven years, which was the most common length of sentence for transported convicts. Listed as a farmer, Felix O'Hare was again convicted in Australia of assault in 1823. Eventually he married, had three children, lived at Parramatta near Sydney, was a landowner, and died in 1876 at the age of 88. What a fascinating life he had. He arrived on that ship, the Fanny, on that day, January 18, 1816, to a continent he would never leave. Thomas Parmenter, born 1790, convicted at Middlesex jail delivery of bigamy. He protested his innocence that he thought his first wife was dead when he married his second, but the court obviously didn't buy it. 
He was sentenced to seven years, but two years after his arrival in Australia, on June 4, 1818, he was pardoned, by which time he had fathered a child with his housekeeper. Parmenter worked as the assistant surgeon at the Castle Hill Lunatic Asylum, beginning in 1820, and later served as a doctor in Windsor. He died in 1836, by which time he owned 600 acres of land in New South Wales, and was a respected and well-loved citizen. Again, what kind of amazing life trajectory is this? Michael Skaysbrook, born March 1, 1795, convicted at the London jail delivery of theft. Sentence, life. Transported at 19, arrived aboard this ship, the Fanny, on that day, January 18, 1816. He received a ticket of leave, I'll explain what that is, on May 25, 1827, and a conditional pardon on May 2, 1837. Michael worked as a farmer and laborer. He had three children with a woman in Australia who had children of her own. He was a landowner, mentioned as buying and selling property in the land records. He died on April 15, 1872, never having returned to England. What can we learn from these stories? What we learn is that Australia was a place both of hope and of hopelessness. Could you imagine shambling down the gangplank of the Fanny on a blazing hot summer afternoon in 1816, with chains on your ankles, looking around at the shabby environs of a prison colony, with bad food, raggedy clothes, and a harsh, hot climate you weren't used to, and knowing that you would spend the rest of your life here. What that must have been like. And yet, the three stories of these convicts who had that experience, they're also the stories of prosperous landowners, a doctor, a writer, husbands and fathers who died with property to will to their Australian-born children, with property and status they could never have hoped to have back in England. You see in these three brief stories both the pessimism and harshness of Australia's convict history, but also its hope and promise. Few other national histories have that kind of schizoid nature, but Australia's does. Before we get to Lachlan Macquarie and the main stories of Australia in the second decade, we have to go back in time a little bit to understand how Australia got the way it was, and indeed why such a colony existed at all. This is a complicated subject, and one that's susceptible to being distorted by oversimplified explanations, so we have to proceed carefully. The continent that we now know as Australia has been inhabited for tens of thousands of years. Indeed, for the original inhabitants of Australasia, what we now call the Aborigines, time itself was more or less a static concept. The natural and human history of Aboriginal Australia seems to have been so heavily intertwined with cosmology and religion that they were essentially inextricable. A concept that has come down to us in Western scholarship, probably not accurately, as dream time. The dream ended on April 19, 1770. On that day, James Cook, the British sea commander and explorer who has made appearances on second decade before, was the first European to land on the Australian continent. The place he discovered and reconnoitered briefly from his ship, the HMS Endeavour, he called Botany Bay. This was but a small part of Cook's first voyage of exploration, which incidentally was undertaken to discover the means of determining longitude at sea, the great spatial and temporal revolution of the 18th century, which had a profound effect on subsequent human history. But that's another story. Cook's description of this strange land and its curious dark-skinned inhabitants was filed away in dusty documents in the British archives for many years, long after Cook himself was dead, and the world, and Great Britain, as they had existed in 1770, changed dramatically. 
By the late 1780s, midway through the reign of George III, also another second-decade character, the British world was in upheaval. At the surrender of Lord Cornwallis in Yorktown, Virginia, in October 1781, British drummers played a tune called The World Turned Upside Down, and that was exactly what had happened. The American Revolution fundamentally remade the Western world, and set the fuse burning down to another revolution, the French, which would explode in 1789. But there were more subtle revolutions going on too. One was urbanization. Even before the Industrial Revolution, Britain's cities were becoming like a pressure cooker. Wages were falling, population of the cities rising, and good work, especially for young men, was becoming increasingly hard to find. English cities had been festering pits of disease and misery since the Middle Ages, but they became particularly so in the 1770s and 1780s. As these changes occurred, and especially as work became harder to find, crime went up. By 1783, the year Britain recognized American independence in the Treaty of Paris, there was a widespread view among British upper classes, and especially conservative British politicians, that England was sinking in a vast wave of crime, and also that criminality was not a behavioral trait, but a class identity. The criminal class was seen as incorrigible and basically permanent. If you were an English gentleman in the 1780s, to you the dirty-faced, rail-thin teenage street urchin who picked your pocket, or the grimy, cockney-accented prostitute who propositioned you while walking the streets of London, were a hopeless and unchangeable feature of the urban landscape. Their growing numbers, and the fact that they could no longer be deported to the American colonies, were soon alarming to British politicians. Furthermore, the structure of British law as it existed in the 1780s, little change from its old medieval origins, made things worse. In an effort to get tough on crime, British lawmakers wrote more and more laws that carried a possible death sentence, particularly laws for theft, forgery, that sort of thing. But then, as now in the United States, draconian laws with stiff penalties proved much more useful for politicians to burnish their images than they are in the practice of dealing with or deterring crime. Indeed, the British laws of the late 18th century were often thought of as too harsh in practice, which meant that judges would often reduce death sentences to prison terms. In the decade of the 1750s, in London and Middlesex, 69% of people convicted of capital crimes were actually executed, but in the 1780s, only 46% were. What was happening to that extra 23% of criminals? They were piling up in Britain's antiquated jails, or worse, on prison ships, moldering hulks of old Royal Navy vessels moored in various places to house convicted criminals in horrifying conditions. Something had to be done. In 1779, the first committee of the House of Commons to study the problem began kicking around ideas about where Britain could ship its convicts, someplace far away where they could be forgotten, but which might eventually have some kind of strategic value. This is the key consideration. As bad as the convict problem was in the 1780s, it would still have been way too expensive to load ships full of crooks, sail them halfway around the world, and then just dump them there, with no economic or political benefit other than just getting them out of England. But if a convict dump could be combined with some sort of colonial project, or if convict labor could be used to produce some kind of economically or strategically valuable resource for Britain, it might, just might, be worth it. There were rumors that flax, which could be woven into canvas and eventually sails for the British Navy, could be grown in New Zealand. 
That proposal didn't really catch fire with the British government, and it wasn't practical. Serious thought was given to a site called Das Voltas Bay on the southwestern coast of Africa. There was rumored to be copper in the hills above it, but a survey mission set there in 1785 reported back that there wasn't enough water or provisions there to found a colony, of convicts or anyone else, scratched as Voltas Bay. This left as a potential transportation site a dark horse in the running. Someone had remembered Cook's description of Botany Bay from 1770. Unlike Das Voltas Bay, the place had never been reconnoitered again by British or any other European ships since 1770 the cabinet of Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger was running out of time and options. A riot aboard one of the prison ships in March 1786 drove home the point that something had to be done with Britain's convict population right away. In August, the cabinet adopted a plan for, quote, effectually disposing of convicts. The destination would be Botany Bay, which Pitt and his ministers chose, with the exception of Cook's sketchy reports, sight unseen. A cluster of ships and personnel was hastily cobbled together, the voyage that would be known in Australian history as the First Fleet, which departed May 13, 1787. We don't have the time to get too deeply into the early history of convict Australia, the first fleet, which reached Australia in late January 1788, consisted of 11 ships, commanded by Captain Arthur Phillip, carried over 700 convicts and 200 marines to guard them, but no free settlers, unless Phillip and his Royal Navy crew could be considered settlers. It turned out that Botany Bay wasn't suitable for a permanent colony, so Phillip moved the fleet a few miles up to a place called Sydney Cove. White settlement in Australia had begun and with it immediate friction with the Aborigines. The very first words spoken by an Aborigine to a white man in Australia were the words, Wara, Wara. That meant, go away. Convict Australia was based on a strict division of labor. The convicts themselves were the labor, and at least at first, the Marines and their Royal Navy governors were their owners. Life in Australia in 1788 and 1789 was unbelievably hard. The British had brought few tools with them, the convicts weren't much good as farmers, or at any other trade. The marines who guarded them just wanted to go home. The environment which was supposed to provide rich soils and easy opportunities was unforgiving and harsh, even deadly. There are lots of poisonous snakes and spiders in Australia. In the early years, what historian Robert Hughes terms the starvation years, settlements at Sydney Cove were rude and squalid, plank huts with thatched roofs. Some convicts starved. Even some marines were hanged for stealing food. Deadly violence between whites and aborigines broke out in May 1788. In 1789, an epidemic of smallpox, which accompanied the white newcomers, decimated aborigine populations around Sydney, the deadly and familiar pattern of European contact with First Nations. Free settlers, as opposed to convicts, first began arriving at New South Wales in 1793. There arose a rigid caste system in the infant colony, at least among the whites. At the bottom were the convicts. They arrived usually in chains, with rags of clothing and very little food, and they were expected to do their manual labor in the colony, hoeing fields, building huts, clearing trees or brush, most of which they did badly. The concept of the system, and it came to be termed the system with a capital S, was that convicts would serve their time in the penal colony 
and then once their sentence was done, they would become free and able to work for wages. In addition to serving your full sentence, as a convict, you might get what was called a ticket of leave, a sort of conditional pardon to go work as a free person, if you didn't cause any more trouble. The lucky among the convicts, once they served their sentences or got their tickets of leave, hoped to secure land grants and work their own farms. The first man to do this was James Ruse, convicted of breaking and entering back in England and sentenced to seven years, and who came to New South Wales on the First Fleet. He was the first self-sufficient farmer in colonial Australia, and received the first land grant. People who arrived in Australia as convicts, and who eventually became free landowners, were known as emancipists. They were in the middle of the social strata, higher than serving convicts, but not as high as the free white settlers who came to Australia voluntarily, and who thought of themselves, not without reason, as a sort of aristocracy. These people eventually became known as the exclusives. The seeds of this system were firmly planted at the time of the first settlements, but they took a while to ripen. For some time, and particularly into the first decade of the 19th century, Australia was a kind of frontier dystopia, ruled not by an aristocracy of settlers putting on airs, but by the military. The marines who acted as guards of the immense prison controlled the one commodity that was effectively currency in Australia, rum. That alcohol became currency in New South Wales reflects just how dark and depressing the place was in 1800. Most of the white population consisted of convicts. Desperate and destitute back in England, they were shipped to the end of the world against their will, in chains, with little clothing, few prospects, and they were beaten mercilessly by the military guards. In addition to punishment, usually whipping with cat-o'-nine-tails, the prisoners were subject to sexual abuse at the hands of their guards or each other, and other forms of exploitation. Add to this hunger, disease, and hopelessness, and you have a population rife for alcohol abuse. When rum was introduced into New South Wales, it instantly became the most sought-after commodity. Particularly in a place where there was very little coinage or currency, rum was much more valuable. The colonial office couldn't do much to staunch the flood of booze that was turning New South Wales into a drunken mess. The official system of administration of the prison colony was a little cumbersome. The British government trusted the Royal Navy men to administer New South Wales, but it was the soldiers who actually had the guns and kept the surly convicts in line. The regiment that ruled Australia was called the New South Wales Corps, formed in England in 1789. These soldiers always had an uneasy relationship with their Royal Navy commanders. The men of the New South Wales Corps recognized the value of rum, and they wanted to control all of it. In the 1790s and early 1800s, a succession of Royal Navy governors tried repeatedly to stamp out trade in rum or other spirits, but without success, mainly because they were thwarted by the New South Wales Corps, who not only set up stills, but pilfered part of the colony's meager grain crop to make more alcohol. By 1805, the situation in New South Wales was appalling. The British government decided to rein in the drunken colony by sending, as a new governor, a man with a deserved reputation for harshness, Captain William Bly, who had formerly commanded the HMS Bounty. After the mutiny in 1789 and Bly's incredible voyage with the Loyalists from that ship, set adrift by mutineer Fletcher Christian in a small boat, Bly's stock among white-wigged Royal Navy bosses was pretty high. Need to impose discipline in a hurry? Send in Captain Bly. That's what they did in 1806. 
Bly's time as governor of New South Wales was, shall we say, suboptimal. Setting aside what an awesome sailor he was, Bly as an administrator was petty and heavy-handed, a reputation he'd earned years before commanding the bounty. He too tried to stop the rum trade and met considerable resistance. Bly's nemesis in the New South Wales Corps was John MacArthur. He's chiefly known in Australian history as having been largely responsible for starting Australia's sheep industry. In 1794, he crossed two strains of sheep, one from Bengal, the other from Ireland, and thus created the classic Australian Merino. You must understand these New South Wales guys were landowners as well as prison guards. MacArthur owned a hundred acres of what was called Parramatta, now a suburb of Sydney. After a number of personality and judicial clashes with Bly, which I won't get into, on January 26, 1808, the 20th anniversary of the founding of the colony of New South Wales, MacArthur and some of his cronies in the New South Wales Corps launched a coup against Governor William Bly. The mutineers found Bly behind his bed, some say hiding in fear, though he claimed he was just hiding papers there. For more than a year, Bly and his family were under house arrest, first at Government House in Sydney, then aboard the HMS Porpoise, anchored at Tasmania, Van Diemen's Land, a subcolony that had been founded in 1803. The British government had to step in to sort everything out. In the meantime, John MacArthur effectively ruled the colony. The rebellion also offered him an opportunity to send his son to England to explain his side of the uprising against Bly. He conveniently sent the son with some bales of wool, which fetched a record price back in London due to a shortage as a result of the Napoleonic Wars which were then raging. After being waylaid in England a number of years for refusing to admit guilt in the rebellion, MacArthur ultimately became one of Australia's richest men, virtual nobility. In the meantime, the British Colonial Office knew they had a hell of a problem to clean up after what was termed the Rum Rebellion. The New South Wales Corps had to go, and so did the system of having Royal Navy governors administer a colony effectively ruled by the British Army. In 1809, they decided to withdraw the New South Wales Corps and replace them with the 73rd Regiment of Foot, love those British Army unit designations, whose commander would become the colonial governor. That commander was Lachlan Macquarie. Macquarie was from an old family of Scotsmen, a very old family, a clan that had been landowners and de facto rulers of various Scottish islands since the Middle Ages. Joining the British Army at age 14, Macquarie saw action in the American Revolution, and later toured far-flung outposts of the nascent British Empire, India and Egypt principally. By 1808, when news of the Rum Rebellion filtered back to England, Macquarie started jockeying for command of the 73rd Foot. He got it. On May 22, 1809, he sailed for Australia aboard the HMS Dromedary, a ship which, ironically, would end its career as the exact kind of prison hulk that New South Wales was supposed to alleviate. Macquarie took office on New Year's Day, 1810. His orders were to arrest the ringleaders of the Rum Rebellion, but they had already left the colony. The new governor meant to crack down on rum and drunkenness. The New South Wales Corps had been shipped back to England, and their power, which stemmed from control of rum, ostensibly broken. However, Macquarie had to make sure another rum cartel didn't spring up at its place. Several of the new governor's edicts annoyed the thirsty denizens of Sydney. Pubs, for example, were closed on Sundays, and Macquarie slapped a stiff tax on the importation of alcohol. This didn't really work. The effect was that people simply drank themselves into debt. 
but at least it was a gesture, and Macquarie, though he got off to a bit of a shaky start, was at least doing something. Captain Bly hadn't been able to accomplish nearly as much. Mind you, Macquarie was the tough guy sent to clean up the mess after the last tough guy who had been sent to clean up the mess that was New South Wales. Macquarie understood that rum had become a commodity in the prison colony not just because its conditions were miserable and the convicts needed an escape. Frontier societies in the second decade and before routinely suffered from lack of cash. What little coins found their way to Australia quickly found their way out again, by trading with foreign merchants who were, by the 18-teens, beginning to visit Sydney more often. Macquarie tried an ingenious solution to the cash problem. He purchased 40,000 Spanish dollar coins, also known as pieces of eight, from Madras, India. They arrived on November 26, 1812, aboard a ship called the Samarang. Macquarie somehow hooked up with a former counterfeiter named William Henshaw, who had been sentenced to seven years in 1805 and whose sentence had just expired. The governor set up Henshaw in a basement room and told him to recut the Spanish coins and re-stamp them. That was so they couldn't be used elsewhere. To double the number of coins that could go into circulation, it was decided that the center of each coin should be cut out, resulting in smaller whole coins and the ring-shaped outer coins, which became known as holy dollars. This was the first currency minted in Australia, and what few examples of the original 1813 holy dollars survive are today museum pieces. Macquarie's idea to institute a monetary policy is interesting because it illuminates another aspect of his mission. Though he was sent to New South Wales in response to the crisis of the Rum Rebellion, and the colonial office considered his job principally as a jailer, Lachlan Macquarie saw Australia as more than just a dumping ground for England's human refuse. He understood, in a way that Bly and his predecessors had had not, that Australia was destined to be a real colony, a place where people lived, worked, built their fortunes, and upheld the British Empire. Wiring New South Wales into the broader economy of the British Empire and the world was a key part of this mission. An internal barter economy based on booze just wouldn't do as the chief British outpost in the Pacific, which was, in the second decade, rapidly becoming a crossroads of world trade. It would seem that New South Wales in 1812 had very little to contribute to this burgeoning economy, but that's not quite true. Whales and seals teemed in the waters off South Australia, and particularly Tasmania. I'll talk about the Australian whaling trade more in the next episode, but it's clear that before MacArthur's merino sheep became Australia's main export, whale oil and seal skins were the colony's economic mainstay. Turning New South Wales from a prison into a real colony would take more than just money. There had to be a system of law as well. Prior to Macquarie's arrival in 1810, the law of Australia was subject to the whim of the military prison guards and their military governors like Captain Bly. There were lots of rules and procedures, the British prided themselves on it, but a vibrant society must have a system of law that exists outside of the people who are charged with executing it. Even if Macquarie himself did not exactly understand this, there were those who did. Lord Bathurst, the Foreign Secretary of the British Cabinet, had appointed as New South Wales Deputy Judge Advocate a man named Ellis Bent, who happened to come out to Sydney aboard the Dromedary, the same ship that carried Macquarie. Bent was the first real lawyer to administer the laws of New South Wales. All of his predecessors had been military officers. At first, Ellis Bent and Governor Macquarie got along quite well, 
they shared the idea of New South Wales becoming an actual civil society, and a real colony as well as just a prison. The general feeling in England, and in Australia for that matter, before 1810, was that the convicts sent there would mainly provide manual labor for the use of the military authorities and the voluntary settlers who sought to get rich there. Convicts were seen sort of like medieval serfs, disposable beings whose sole value was how they enriched their masters. Macquarie disagreed. He understood the future of Australia was not in voluntary settlers, the exclusives, of whom there was only a tiny handful in the second decade, but in the emancipists, the ex-convicts who would either serve their sentences or receive tickets of leave, and went on to become farmers, ranchers, and workers in their own right. These people had to have some rights restored to them, legal as well as economic rights. The way this manifested itself in the legal system that began to spring up in Australia was the revolutionary idea, Ellis Bentz in fact, that ex-convicts could appear before his court as sort of quasi-lawyers, representing other convicts. That would have been impossible in England, but it was the only course in Australia, which in the 18-teens had exactly two genuine lawyers, those being Ellis Bent and his brother Geoffrey, who was also a lawyer. There was also legal reform, with the introduction of jury trials and a new Supreme Court of Civil Judicature that was formed, though Bent was passed over as the first justice of this court in favor of Geoffrey. Indeed, the judiciary in New South Wales ultimately became a point of contention between Macquarie and his chief jurist. Macquarie was all for building civil institutions in Australia, but he was still the governor, and a military governor at that. He balked at giving the infant judiciary of the colony true judicial independence, and instead insisted that Bent had to follow his orders. They could never resolve this conflict. Poor Ellis Bent, who got sick on the long voyage to Australia and never really recovered, ultimately fell into ill health and became increasingly dependent on his brother. The conflict between Macquarie and the Bent brothers eventually became acrimonious. Macquarie sent an ultimatum back to Lord Bathurst in England, saying that he would resign unless Bathurst canned the Bent boys. During the long time that this letter took to get back to England, Ellis Bent died in Sydney on November 10, 1815. For the record, Bathurst sided with Macquarie, deciding to remove the Bent brothers from their positions. Macquarie was to stay on for another six years. But by this time, the whole situation in Australia was changing. The Napoleonic Wars ended once and for all in the summer of 1815, and Britain returned to a peacetime footing and a disastrous economic picture. With lesser need for soldiers and sailors, and ships now available for the Australia run, the numbers of convicts transported to New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land suddenly soared. The white population of the colonies was 12,471 in the year 1812. Five years later, in 1817, it was 20,379. The vast majority of them were still convicts, but Macquarie's first tentative steps toward transforming Australia into a colony instead of just a prison were beginning to bear fruit. In that same period, New South Wales was beginning to change physically, as trees were felled and the scrubby fields around Sydney gradually came under cultivation, and as the aboriginal inhabitants were forced to retreat deeper into the bush in the face of white encroachment, new plants, organisms, and diseases brought by white men were changing the face of the ancient continent. Governor Lachlan Macquarie wanted a physical change in his surroundings, too. In 1812, Sydney was still a ramshackle village of thatched roofs, crude plank houses, and dirt streets. 
Macquarie dreamed in its place of a grand Georgian-style city, with government buildings, stone churches, and public works, a microcosm of Britain shining on the farthest edge of its imperial frontier. Macquarie's wife Elizabeth had brought with her to Australia a handsome book full of the best kinds of building and urban designs, the kind of thing that was being done in Paris, or even in Washington, D.C., by famous architects like Benjamin Latrobe. This book became the blueprint of Macquarie's vision of a new Sydney, one befitting the overseas empire of George III. In addition to the vision, Macquarie had the labor to make it happen. Thousands of chained convicts to whom nobody had to pay wages, and whom he could dispatch to any project he liked. Armed with this vision of a new Sydney and a captive labor force, Macquarie set to make his physical and cultural mark on Australia, which is exactly what he would do during the rest of the second decade. We will turn to that story and several others in part two of Australia. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also, check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like History in the Making, The Dangerous History Podcast, Dead Ideas, Election College, Explorers, The China History Podcast, and The Way of Improvement Leads Home. And remember, the Second Decade book is coming. I don't know when yet, but it is coming. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes, published by Alfred E. Knopf, 1987. Special thanks to Mako, who portrayed Lachlan Macquarie, and also special thanks to Joffy Lovett. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.